Hello everyone, I'm Simon Ford of Forge Gin. Martinis, gin and tonics, Negronis, great classic cocktails is what I'm about. But I also love to hear of great recipes from great bartenders from around the world, which is why we've partnered with Beyond the Drink for this season. Cheers. Well, you just heard from the man himself, Simon Ford, and this season of Beyond the Drink is brought to you by our friends at Ford's Gin. I'm Cappy, and in this series, we're going to hear from some of the best bartenders in the country as they share the stories and recipes behind their favorite drinks. Beyond the Drink is a spinoff of Beyond the Plate, our podcast that sits down with the world's culinary elite to explore their journey into the food industry and the social impact they have made in their communities. We invite you to check out this season of Beyond the Plate, where we're featuring some of the greatest restaurant and hospitality duos. And if you're new to Beyond the Drink, welcome. If you listened before, we're so glad you're back. We hope this episode inspires you to create a delicious cocktail or, like the bartenders we feature, make a difference in your community. To get the cocktail recipe we discussed in this episode, check out the episode notes in your podcast player or go to beyondtheplatepodcast.com. One more thing, we have some awesome Beyond the Plate merch. You can find the link in your podcast player or go to our website, beyondtheplatepodcast.com. Head on over and check out our hats, tees, hoodies, and more. Again, that's beyondtheplatepodcast.com. Enjoy this week's episode. Joining us today are two incredibly accomplished cocktail minds in the beverage world. First up, Julie Reiner is the co-founder of just a few world-renowned cocktail bars in Brooklyn, New York, and the author of The Craft Cocktail Party, Delicious Drinks for Every Occasion. She's been elevating the cocktail scene in New York City for 25 years, starting with her first bar, Flatiron Lounge, in 2003, followed by the Pegu Club in 2005, which she opened with Audrey Saunders. You may have recently seen Julie featured as a judge on the Netflix show, Drink Masters. Simon Ford, well, his name's on the bottle, people. Ford's Gin. He's the co-founder of the 86 Company and Ford's Gin, one of the best-selling craft gins on the market. Are you still considered a craft gin? Yeah, not quite yet the best-selling either. (laughs) 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 We've got a way to go. (laughs) All right. He's a leading voice in the spirits and cocktails industry and has been prominently featured on the hit podcast, Beyond the Plate. Oh, that's us people. Catch him in season six as we discuss his journey with Ford's Gin. And in season eight, where we discuss Ford's program called Music to Drink Martinis Too. You can find more on them in the episode notes and follow Julie on Instagram at MixtressNYC and Simon at Simon Ford's Gin. Please enjoy this episode as we go beyond the drink with Julie Reiner and Simon Ford. All right, Julie and Simon, let's uh, kick this episode off with an audio test. So we're going to start with you, Julie. Name two ingredients you love to use with gin. Lemon, mint. Love it. Simon. Two ingredients you love to use with gin. Tonic, vermouth. Got it. All right, you both sound good. Let's do it. Simon, I'm curious about your guys' friendship here. And I know you've traveled the world. You've been to the best bars on all corners of the globe. What makes Julie one of the best in the world? What makes her stand out? I would start by saying one of the first to really get what was going to happen next in this world of cocktails. It, there, there is very few people doing what everyone around the world is doing when Julie starts doing it. And so, in my opinion, a lot of what we see around the world comes from the influence of what Julie started, particularly when she started the Flat Iron Lounge, which is all the way back in 2003. For me, that's perfectly executed drinks in beautiful glassware. The atmosphere was 
just this art deco, beautiful cocktail environment. There was service as you got through the door, you know, a host that would bring you to your table, high level service, and then beautifully executed drinks. And seldom was anybody doing that at the time. And this bar could be everything from the most elegant of moments to actually a fun, upbeat party. It was very much New York and a scene in New York. But for me, that is one of the beginnings to what I see has been a trend in great drinks all over the world. Julie is one of the sort of points where that started. And that's not stopped her, which is what makes her amazing. Because if you, I think about it from the perspective of it started at the Flatiron in New York City. She opened the Clover Club in Brooklyn when there was nothing in Brooklyn. And that kickstarted a whole scene in Brooklyn. I loved that bar so much because it had windows and daylight so it kind of had that vibe of a night bar and a day bar combined where you could actually get great drinks. It was my local for many, many years. And so Julie has just continued to pioneer throughout the course of her career and never stopped, which is also what makes her incredible for me. You know, the latest bar, Miladies, is, is bang smack in the middle of New York. But I would say that Julie's more qualified to talk about her new projects than yeah. I am. <laughs> yeah. I love that. And Andrew, we, we met at the Flatiron Lounge when it was a building site. Really? Yeah. I was going to ask. Okay. So I was messaging with friend of the pod who I've mentioned before to you, Simon, Tony Abugani. And I was mentioning I was going to speak with both of you. And he wanted to first, Simon, send another congratulations. He told me Ford's Gin won Best in Show at the 2023 TAG Global Spirits Awards. Is that right? It did. Nice. Yeah. Love it. Of all the gins, to top of the class, which is really, I'm very proud of that moment. I, I, I didn't bribe any judges this time. <laughs> Uh. (laughs) I actually judged that competition uh, and we don't know what we're tasting It is just all blind tasting. So you can't bribe us anyway. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. Okay. So in season six, Simon, we discussed your journey with Fords and I specifically remember you telling me that you were hesitant to put your name on the bottle. So my question for you is how does it feel going from being hesitant to put your name on the bottle to receiving awards and accolades like that yeah i mean obviously one of the reasons for not wanting to put my name on on the bottle is because what if it failed right there's that when you question yourself you know and now you've used your name for the one thing that you because you don't get many chances to use your name and so you use this name and all of a sudden it doesn't work out i was very scared of that being the moment and then of course what if people didn't like it i knew that i loved it but what if people didn't like it the way i liked it so of course i was going through all of those i don't know I should talk about this with my psychologist and perhaps not <laughs> here, but, but, I, but I, the fear of rejection, right, was, was fully there. And so putting my name on, on the bottle. And of course, every time I see it on a back bar to this day, and I've said this before, it's the same as when I was a bartender and someone enjoyed a cocktail that I had created. I get a sense of pride that someone's actually chosen to give up one of their spots on that back bar for that bottle. And then when it receives a, an award, of course, a, a great deal of pride. I'm wondering at what point I do put the apostrophe in and it actually becomes uh, the possessive as the name, you know, <laughs> because I'm getting more and more confident that this thing might work out right now. That's a good, that's a good limited edition uh, bottle, special label there. I mean, look, it's been amazing. This season we've talked to to bartenders all over the globe, as we were talking about before we started recording in Australia and in London and whatnot. And it's been really refreshing to hear the praise that they have for you. And as some of them stated, what you've done for gin in this country, it's pretty extraordinary to hear. So 
from us here at the pod. Congrats to you as well. I need to catch up on this season. I've been traveling so much. Probably not for another couple of weeks, and then I'm going to dig in and listen to all the episodes. That's nice. I'm I'm prepared for for nice things now. (laughs) So Tony had a question for you both. He said, I'd be curious how they each prefer their Ford's dry martini. I take mine four to one with Dolan dry vermouth and a twist of lemon. Also, thoughts on adding a couple dashes of orange bitters. I'm going to have Simon take this one first. I actually kind of like the way Tony's going, the orange bitters. Four to one, five to one is my sort of preferred ratio these days, interestingly enough. I did go further wet for a minute, but that's kind of like where I've landed. And there's this thing that they do at the Atlas Bar where they add this spoon of uh, vinegar, which I like. And there's also a trend right now of actually mixing up a little bit of Bianco into the dry vermouth too. So I still can't pick a favorite martini. It's based on the mood, but there are things that I'm enjoying right now. But when it comes to me making one at home, I actually probably make it just like Tony makes it. Spoon of vinegar. I haven't heard that. I've heard like a sprinkle. Champagne vinegar, tiny dash. It just gives it an effervescence. It was quite, that's what they do at the Atlas and I kind of like it. It's the type of thing that doesn't sound good, but then when you try it, it tastes good. I remember when we were talking to Masa about the martini, he said how he puts a dash of salt in it. And I was curious if it was like for flavor or if it was to salt like drops the freezing temperature. So I was curious if it made it colder in a way. And then he was going on to say how at home, sometimes he'll mix it in a plastic like deli container. I'm like, all right, now we're talking. (laughs) (laughs) Julie, we always ask our guests to share a gin-based cocktail. And perhaps this martini conversation is a good segue to, to yours. Yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah, I have to say when I make a martini at home, my personal favorite is two and a half ounces of Ford's gin or London dry style. That is always my fave. And then I'll do a half an ounce of dry and a half ounce of Bianco with two dashes of orange bitters and a lemon twist. So that's sort of my at home martini. But, you know, at Milady's, I wanted to create a house martini that would always be on the menu there. And I created something that is made with Ford's gin. We're using a rosé vermouth, the Lustau rosé vermouth, a little bit of Amaro in like a just a quarter teaspoon rather than orange bitters. And then a purple olive and a lemon twist, which is just discarded. That's a drink that will always be on the menu. And I wanted it to be pink. So it's like a light pink hue. It's great. Andrew, this is this is one of the top three martinis of the world right now. You know, like I've never tried them all side by side, but it is one of the, uh, you know, so I can't pick a first, but it's one of the best martinis I've ever had, the Milady's Martini. I'm back in New York next week, so I know where I'll be yeah, on like to. Friday or Saturday. I'll yeah. Oh, I forgot. Some, it also has, I, I left out my favorite ingredient, Fino Sherry. So it has a little bit of Fino Sherry to it also. So it adds a little bit of salinity, which is great. And yeah, it's been very popular. <laughs> Julie, last season when we did the we did a fun music to drink martinis to episode with Simon and we did a martini speed round for him. So I feel like it makes sense to do the same with you right now, given that conversation. So I'm going to give you a few of those <laughs> same questions. Number one, where was the last martini you drank? Miladies. Number two, everyone should try a blank martini at Blank. I can't remember what the name of the martini, but Takuma's Martini at Martini's that comes with caviar. Excellent. (laughs) And number three, last martini picture you took on your phone. Last martini picture I took on my phone. I believe that was actually at Clover Club for during our menu tasting recently. (laughs) 
spent a lot of time in my own bars. <laughs> That's a good sign. Simon, I think you said everyone should try Duke's Martini at the Duke's Hotel in London. Is that right? And yeah. then you also mentioned Atlas Bar in Singapore. And funny enough, like a month or two ago, we got a random message from a listener saying that they just went to the Atlas Bar to try a martini because they heard someone on the podcast talking about it and that they must go there to try it. And they had listened to that episode and were in Tokyo and went to Atlas Bar or Singapore and yeah, and went to Atlas Bar. So that was fun. Nice. Simon, Simon actually took me to Duke's for a martini way back in the early 2000s. <laughs> Delicious. Talking martinis with Ago and Giorgio was fun. And then I talked with Stefano from Maybe Sammy and I said to Stefano, who makes a better martini, you or Ago? <laughs> he said Ago makes a better martini. It's funny because what they do at the Cono is they pour, uh, they do a very high pour and then they add the oils to the pour. And so when I was in maybe Sammy, I was there with Ago. And so just to sort of one up Ago, they, the bartender stood on the bar and so did the long pours. And then they had like three or four of the other bartenders squeezing the oils into it. And then the bubbles going around or something. Yeah, brilliant. That's really funny. <laughs> you hit upon this in a way when I was asking you about Julie earlier on about how she's setting the standard and what she's doing and how other people see what she's doing. So I suppose my question for you, Julie, is do you feel pressure to constantly evolve or invent or innovate new cocktails? Not anymore. You know, I mean, early on in my career, early in the Flatiron days, I was doing all of the menus. So I felt a lot more pressure then. But as the industry has evolved, my teams have gotten bigger. And now my role is very different. And I really depend on my head bartenders and bar teams and everyone to sort of all have input on the menus. And so there, it's a group effort, you know, so it's less pressure to have everything on just you to be like, I have to come up with the next thing. But yeah, and I, I have an incredible team of people. And, and if we get stuck on something, we call somebody else in and we're like, hey, can you come and do some R&D with us? So our menus tend to be really multiple people have worked on any one cocktail that makes the menu, which just makes it a better beverage program all around. That's really cool. I'll say one thing also, Andrew, is that a lot of seriously top talent has emerged out of Julie's bars as well, which is sort of part of what helped spread this cocktail culture, you know, across the US. Bartenders that went on to help other entrepreneurs open places or bartenders that went on to open their own places. And of course, all of a sudden you, you start to see that. So that would say that Julie's creating a culture where it nurtures talent and pulls from it and obviously now heard it from you julie we know why <laughs> bring it from everybody it's so yeah, cool well, I mean, in those early days it was such a the growth was happening so quickly that really there wasn't a lot of talent so you had to teach people and then they would go on to do other things and i mean it was you, you lost a lot of people and i mean i remember having bartenders that i would spend so much time training them whether from a cocktail server to a bartender that by the time it was time for them to move on and do something else i would be just like in tears you know put so much time into that <laughs> yeah it's the right thing for them to move on but the amount of time and training and energy that you know you put into an employee or somebody who was helping with the program it 
was a lot. And now it, it was nice to get to a point where I was like, oh, I can hire someone who was trained by somebody that I trained. That was like this aha moment when somebody came to me and they had worked for Phil Ward at Myowell. And I was like, you're hired. <laughs> <laughs> because I trained Phil, so fantastic. That's amazing. That is amazing. That's it's yeah. like it's very cool. It's refreshing. Yeah, I'm sure it's refreshing and interesting to hear, Julie. I I've been in the culinary world for 20 years, so a lot of what I see here and talk about in this cocktail space is through a culinary lens in a way. So it's mm-hmm. really neat to hear what you're saying in terms of multiple people being involved in the conceptualization or execution of a cocktail because that happens on a plate it happens in a song with songwriters you know whatever it may be but even furthermore i had this conversation briefly with daniel hum i think it was last season because i always say you can tell cooks that worked at 11 madison park when they go off to do something and the other chef i like to use this example for is jean george when someone says oh yeah he worked with jean george i'm like that's not surprising because you know, whether it's the Asian influence or, you know, in the dishes. But I mean, that's incredible testament to your knowledge and education that these bartenders go off and I feel like have been under your tutelage in a way. Can you both tell, like if you're at a bar, is it as, I guess I'll use the word easy to tell like, if a bartender, or you'd be like, oh, I could tell they worked here or worked with someone. Can you tell that with a cocktail? It's interesting because it's, I've been in bars where I'm like, oh, this style definitely comes from this place. And so I'll ask the bartender sometimes, do you know this bar? And they'll say, no. And I'm like, ah, because everything you're doing comes from there. And so then at that point, I wonder what the, um, the journey was yeah. for that person and, and who they might have been taught by. So I definitely see things that came out of certain places and they get implemented elsewhere. But as the industry gets bigger and bigger, it's harder to trace it back to a singular place. Unless it's like a unique technique or yeah, something. Yeah, you, it know. was interesting. Julie and I recently did a talk in at the Roma Bar Show together, which was 35 years of cocktail evolution. And we sort of traced everything back from the 90s up until now. And we explored the trends that came and went. Some of them were kind of crazy <laughs> that we even did it in the first place. Others, there was a moment when the cocktail industry was a bit like Spinal Tap, you know, when it was getting, everyone was trying to turn everything up to 11 and there was these crazy drinks that like, it, they didn't taste any better than one that would take one minute to make, but that they had 17 ingredients and whatever, you know, and that got dialed back. But it was, an, I actually liked that period. But at the same time, I'm glad that we moved on from it too, you know. You know, we were talking about it, but there was a point when once upon a time, everyone tasted every single drink with a straw before the environmentally conscious bartender has, uh, has arrived. And so if you've been around for as long as... God, <laughs> I didn't even want to say that. <laughs> Don't say that. <laughs> but you do remember who might have done something first. But I would say that if you've entered the industry, there's not enough that chronicles who, what that and who that might have been. But as different schools of bartending thought emerged... You definitely see where the influence is. You know, it could be the milk and honey. It could be what came from the flat iron lounge. Even employees only to a certain degree where they were free pouring and they were doing something very different at the time. And so you do still see these influences out in the world. You just don't necessarily know if that bartender knows where that influence came from. Yeah, I was actually going to say that in the early, like early 2000s, particularly in New York City, everybody looked very much the same. You know, we were always talking about how everybody kind of bartended the same and we all moved away from glass on metal and went to tin on tin because it was sort of like there was Sasha's school, there was my school and there was Audrey Saunders. And a lot of our people were working at 
both two places at once. Somebody, you know, it was like Sammy was working at Milk and Honey and at Pegu Club. Bill Ward was at Flatiron Lounge and Pegu Club, you know, and so, and and many of, of the bartenders were doing that, but a lot of the bartending style very much looked the same. And it wasn't until Jack McGarry came over and they opened the Dead Rabbit that suddenly I remember sitting at that bar and being like, wow, it was a different style of bartending technique. And this was also sort of around the time where the internet started having videos of people doing things and people talking about it. So all of a sudden, you could be a bartender in India, and you're learning how to make a cocktail from somebody in California, and you're able to sort of emulate their style. So that was sort of where it all became very muddy, where you could sit at a bar and be like, this person is bartending in a style that looks just like this person in wherever, but they've never even met because they're learning on the internet. But yeah, in those early days, it was all very much, we all looked a lot exactly the same. (laughs) So interesting. I mean, you mentioned internet. So I mean, social media had to have expedited that too, but it's so wild. And I want to mention something if there's any young cooks or bartenders listening right now, which I, I know there is, Simon mentioned something extremely important, like tracing the journey of something, whether it's a dish, a cocktail, an ingredient. I think that's incredibly important. Don't just go through the motions of mixing a drink or cooking a dish, like know why you're doing it or where it came from. Actually, there's a, a great journalist, Andrew Friedman, New York, you may be familiar, but he has a book coming out that he trace it's with two chefs a husband and wife here in chicago a parachute restaurant and he i believe the concept is he takes a dish and like traces the whole dish back to i think everything from the plateware to the farmer every ingredient in it and how it came together and it's a whole book tracing the the dish which is really cool so anyhow all right let's do a, a little speed round first thing that comes to mind julie this is your speed round first number one name the cocktail that inspired you to get behind the bar manhattan number two what pisses you off behind the bar people eating the garnishes (laughs) (laughs) number three what makes you happy behind the bar seeing reactions of guests when they are enjoying what we're serving them Number four, the one gin-based cocktail everyone needs to try. Southside Fizz. And I say that because, can I give you a reason? Yes, of course. (laughs) Yes. That was sort of the drink in at the early Flatiron Lounge days that this was, you know, when people were drinking Cosmopolitans and Lemon Drop, I would offer people a Southside Fizz because to me, it's a gin crossover drink for people who were like, I don't like gin. And I would say, try this. If you hate it, I'll give you that Cosmo. And nine times out of 10, if not more, they were thanking me for turning them on to something new and different. And now I had created gin drinkers. <laughs> so important. Can you share really quick what's in the Southside Fizz? Yeah, it is. I always did it sort of what we called London style, but it's muddled cucumber and mint. You can do it without the cucumber if you don't want it London style. Fresh lime, a little bit of simple syrup and gin, and then shaken, fine strained and topped with club soda, and then jar- just garnished with mint and cucumber. It's sort of like a gin mojito in a way. If you don't do, if you take the cucumber out, it's a very forgiving drink. It's refreshing and delicious and everyone loves it. Can I clarify though? It's okay to eat the garnish that's on my drink, right? Yes. Just not the garnish in the tray in front of you. Yeah, <laughs> that is what I meant. I meant if we have Don't dip your hand in, in the bowl of, you, of olives that are, yeah. Stop eating all of the raspberries, you know. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> All right, Simon, you're up. Number one, most unexpected mixer for gin. Oh, gosh. Unexpected mixer for gin for me. I'm going to say, duh. Unexpected mixer for gin. <laughs> I, I don't know. Ginger. I, Tomato gin juice. Ginger. Tomato, Tomato juice. juice. <laughs> Thank you, Judy. <laughs> <laughs> Number two. Unexpectedly yeah. delicious. <laughs> yeah. So funny. Number two, last cocktail that blew you away. Oh, actually, the Milady's Martini is up there on that list for sure. And I would say there's a they do this shot martini at Taylor and Elementary, which blows my mind. It's got like an olive in it. And it's almost like you take a it's like a martini served in a shot glass. And then you and you do a quick shot and take the olive and the olive just how they've paired that olive is quite incredible. And last number three, what is the last cocktail you took a picture of on your phone? The last cocktail I took a picture of was a badly made bramble that tasted delicious <laughs> in, in, in Istanbul. They shook it all up, no crushed ice. I was like, you're doing it all wrong. And then I tried it and it tasted really good. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. All right, Simon, you're not getting a free pass here. Last cocktail you made at home and walk us through it. The last cocktail I made at home was a, a batched martini. It's sitting in the fridge right now. It's a five-to-one martini using the Forge Gin bottle. It has Dolan vermouth. It will be approved for by Mr. Abaganan. And it's got orange bitters in it, water, and it is ready to go right now. I could grab it from the freezer and show you. It's like, it's there in case of an emergency. <laughs> <laughs> And, and I, I did I did actually make it. I can't say this was the greatest Negroni on earth, but I wanted a Negroni the other day and I'm out of Campari and I was out of sweet vermouth. And so, I, but I found a bottle of Dubonnet and I used Aperol and it passed. <laughs> Wasn't perfect, but sometimes when you need. It's <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> funny. All right, let's switch gears to social impact and giving back. Simon, as you know, our Beyond the Plate listeners know our podcast because we celebrate all of our guests. And I think it's no different with people in the bartending community, how generous they are as well, as we've learned over the seasons. So I guess first, you know, as it's been incredible to hear from these bartenders, as I mentioned, all over about Fords. What's the special sauce that makes Fords so special across the globe? I know you guys are so supportive of the community, but... Yeah, I, I think that what makes Fords unique as a brand, and I, I, well, unique, there are other brands that probably do this, but I think we're an extension of the hospitality industry through our brand. I actually think that that's what we do. I think that the way anybody that works on Fords acts is as if they were someone in the hospitality industry. And then if you have a professional in this industry, then of course, it's that age old, we want to make people happy. We want to put smiles on people's faces. We want to make their day just that much better. And we like to look after people, right? Like our grandmother like used to look after us. We want to look after people. And that is done by the best hospitality professionals in the world, right? And I think that when we try and conduct ourselves as a brand, sure, we have a gin and we made it for bars and cocktails and those things. But I actually think that what we try and do is extend ourselves towards the uh, industry and towards the consumer in a way that hospitality professionals would. Most people that work on the brand come from that background. And I actually, again, I see our industry as tremendous at giving. For some reason, the hospitality industry always finds an excuse to put some form of uh, charity you know, into a spotlight or some area of social conscience into the spotlight. 
when ultimately we're having a drink. I think about the cocktail festivals around the world. There's always something happening that's trying to push our social conscience forward while we have a good time. And I think that those things can come together. So I do think that that's what we try to do at, at Ford. But I do think that it's an extension of the industry. Yeah, well said. Julie, how about you? I'd love to give you a moment to shed some light on a, a certain organization or cause that maybe you would like to raise awareness for that I've worked with. Yeah, I actually recently did a, a fundraising event for an organization called the Kokua Restaurant and Hospitality Fund that basically raises money uh, originally. So I'm from Hawaii, uh, Honolulu, and this is an organization that raises money for people within our industry who are having a hard time. Currently, they are focusing all on the people who work in Maui, uh, who lost their jobs, and many of them lost their homes as well in Lahaina due to the wildfire uh, there. So I did a charity event that that we raised a lot of money. Actually, Ford's was one of the sponsors. Thank you, Simon. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, basically helping all of the people there who, who need it. Yeah, that's great. Thank you for that. It's incredible how quick you all are able to just step up and support a cause, you know, when people are in need. So yeah, I mean, it's also nice to have I reach out to various brands to help out. And I have obviously have multiple venues that I can use. And everybody likes a party. So to to do something fun, that ultimately raises money for people who really need it is a really great gift to be able to to have. All righty, let's close it out. I'm going to start to close it out with you, Julie. You were recently named number 24 on Bar World 100, the industry's most influential figures of 2023. In a social media post, you went on to say that you started working in bars when you were 18 years old and you knew it was the industry you belonged in from minute one. And this award reaffirmed that you are still exactly where you are supposed to be. What advice do you have for bartenders trying to navigate where they're supposed to be? Well, I mean, if you're working in hospitality, you have to love it because it is very hard work and it's long hours. And I feel like so many of the people who work in our industry just know that they can't be anywhere else. But there are a lot of different avenues that you can take. So I would say try things out. I know people who've moved from kitchens to bar and just being able to uh, try different styles of restaurants or bars or to find what your true passion is, because you have to be passionate about it to stay in it as long as Simon and I have. And we both, you know, morphed multiple different directions throughout our careers. So that would be advice that I would have and also to do the work. I feel like a lot of the young people coming up in the industry now, they see all these accolades and awards and things that that they want to strive for, but they want to get there tomorrow rather than spending the time to learn, uh, learning the history, learning why these three ingredient drinks that were created long ago work. Focus on doing the work and putting in your time but so that you can get to that place where you deserve those accolades. And, and that's something that I talk to my staff about all the time. And I have a lot of people who reach out to me for advice. And that is generally one of the things that I tend to say the most. Fantastic. Well said. Thank you. Simon, we mentioned a little bit earlier at the top of the episode, you've seen a lot of bars on most corners of the globe, literally. When it comes to bar etiquette, tell us one thing we should never 
do in a bar. <laughs> I know, Julie, definitely jump in here. <laughs> All right, you could both you could both take this. I, I honestly, I'm going to start by you know there are so many things that one shouldn't do, but the people that work in the places deserve the utmost respect. You know, I think Julie just touched on the long hours that is done, the passion that gets put into it. Not every moment is perfect, and you know when we came out of COVID, there was we were short on staff and it was incredible to see how rude people were to hospital people in the hospitality world, like treating them almost like they're a servant in their castle. And so the number one etiquette for me is to treat people in the hospitality industry with absolute respect and dignity because they deserve it. They're working hard to make you happy. They're doing their best. And that's the majority of them. It's hard to put yourself out there on a nightly basis too. I mean, the amount of energy, people who work behind bars, it's like they have problems and things going on in their lives too, but they have to sort of, when they step behind the bar, they leave their own things behind so that they can entertain you and make you feel good, you know, which is sometimes not an easy task. We're always saying like, you should, everybody should work in hospitality at one point in their life, you know, because it really does make you understand what it's like to be on the front lines serving people. You know, from my perspective, you know, if, if say it, it, it's taking a while for the drinks to come out, it's, it's, that's not an opportunity to complain. That's an opportunity if you're looking for your drinks to say, hey, everything cool back there, just making sure I haven't been forgotten is and give that person an opportunity to go, oh, we are in the weeds tonight. I'm so, you know, like I feel like it's a symbiotic relationship guest uh, as a guest with the people that work in the venue and a little bit of understanding. We've all burnt a dish at home and needed to recook it. So that can happen in a restaurant too, you know. <laughs> and you know that the chef wants to give you the best version of that dish. So I feel like em- empathy, that's the word I was looking for. <laughs> like be empathetic whenever you are in a, in, a, in a venue. How about last one here? One thing we should always do in a bar. Apart from tip well, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that could be it. That could be it. Be polite. Say thank you. And order what they what is what their thing is you know i mean i think oftentimes people come in like we spend so much time creating menus and then the first thing people come in and they're like i'd like something off menu you know well we've only spent months creating these drinks for you so i'm going to choose one of them and you're going to believe that it's off menu but you know let sort of try what the specialty of the house is and don't try to substitute other brands for what they use that's another one that's an embarrassing thing it, always when that happens i i sit there julie when i'm with a gra- crowd and they're like can you change it to this can you change it? i'm like no yeah yeah <laughs> there's a reason that we use the specific brand in this drink you know awesome well i am going to let you both go i appreciate both of your time this was extremely insightful i love this conversation but julie thank you andrew you need to do an entire episode on things you should and shouldn't do in a bar and restaurant trust me i started to ask ago and giorgio about it as one of their questions a similar one and i was like if you were to write a book on etiquette and ago it's like you read my mind (laughs) (laughs) which is pretty funny Anyhow, yeah, there probably can be, huh? But thank you. Thank you both. Julie, thank you. I'll make sure. I want to check out the newest spot. Miladies is the newest one, yes? Yes, yeah. Let me know. I will join you for 
my favorite martini. Awesome. <laughs> the awesome, martini. Awesome. But thank yeah, you awesome. so much for having me on. I'll yeah. take any opportunity to hang out with Simon. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, Simon. Thank you as always. Thank you to you, to Forts, to everything you all do for us here at the podcast and quite frankly, the whole bartending community. So love it. Thanks, Julie. Thanks, Andrew. To get the recipe from this episode, check out the episode notes in your podcast player or go to beyondtheplaypodcast.com. This episode is produced by myself along with Ian Cohen, Joel Yetton, and Sean Petrosian. Find me and keep up to date with this podcast across all social media platforms at Oncappy's Plate or go to beyondtheplaypodcast.com. Beyond the Plate is on all the socials at BT Plate Podcast. Please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on your listening site of choice. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Drink, a production of Beyond the Plate. I'm Cappy.